Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their fantastic commitment to this program. This week on Top Lines and Tales, we have what I would call a legend in the cattle business, uh, a, a man who is up there with probably one of the top cattle breeders of all time, uh, Willie McLaren Sr. And Willie is sadly no longer with us, but uh, I'd like to pay homage to a man who really has done his bit for the, the cattle industry in the UK and around the world. And uh, I'm joined by uh, Willie McLaren Jr. Um, on the podcast. Willie, uh, welcome. Well, thank you, Andy, for asking. It's an honour to be here and talk about Fowler. And Willie, I interviewed your father in your kitchen uh, probably close on 10 years ago now, and I do have some of those recordings, so I'm going to um, intersperse a couple of those here into the podcast. Well, let's just go back to his early days, and I think it was his grandfather who started with uh, Drumhead, heard, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1924, so uh, a bit of Angus breeding behind you, your father. Yes, I mean, the Drumhead's just about two miles away, uh, just at Blackford, uh, it was founded there before the herd moved to Netherton. And actually, Dad was always proud he had a sale receipt from Drumhead in 1911 right. where they advertised superior Aberdeen Angus dairy cows in their dispersal. Uh-huh. And at that time, uh, they made about 22, 24 guineas, which was a lot more than normal. And they all went to Jai Kera Harveston. So he always thought he had maybe a little part to pay in the breed before even the herd was founded. Wow, and Jay Kerr is a main man we've we've talked about on this podcast and another legend within the breed. And I know, I remember talking to your brother about this one, I think, at the time. And uh, your father had been to Harveston, if I remember right. And he'd, he'd been there and seen the cows with his father, I think. Yeah, I mean, Dad admired uh, Kerr Harveston. I mean, he was one of his idols and he bred cattle that Dad liked. And he always tells the story that when him and father turned up at Harveston to see some bulls that... A group of Argentinians turned up at the same time when they were paying the big money and uh, Mr. Kerr Harveston decided to take dad and granddad round the herd and and, uh, grandfather protested, no, no, go and take the Argentinians, they'll spend a lot more money than us. And of which uh, Jay Kerr said, that's where you're wrong, Mr. McLaren. He says, your son will be buying Aberdeen Angus long after they've stopped coming to Perth. So... Uh, wise words. We'll step onto that in in a second because he did kind of predict uh, um, the demise of of the export market. But this is what Willie Senior had to say about uh, Kerr when I spoke to him. Jay yeah. Kerr used to always say to me when I was young, "Make sure the pedigree's right because uh-huh. if it's not, if there's something wrong in it, yeah. it'll come back and hit you in the face." Yeah, yeah, that's wise words. There's one bull in there. Jay Kerr always reckoned it was the best bull he ever bred was Jarvieri, and he was a good bull. Uh, that would be in, he was born in '32, I think. And that that to you would be something that we need to get back to. I think so. Mm-hmm. Just going back to those times, I think your father left school in 1947, got told off at school, I think I remember him telling me he got told off at school for looking at his scrapbook rather than doing his French um, homework in, in lessons, and uh, by the time he left school he was already keen on Angus, wasn't he? Yes, I mean, the scrapbook was, uh, Dad had a great scrapbook of Angus and Shorthorns back there. We still have it. It's mm. great to look back at all the old pictures. And his French teacher confiscated it one time in the lesson and Dad went on strike <laughs> and wouldn't do any work and uh, eventually got his scrapbook back. And then years later, the French teacher was in Perth at the bull sales and 
I think Dad had sold a bull at good money and he said, oh, maybe that scrapbook did you a lot more good than my French lessons. <laughs> Evidently so. Evidently so. And, and you say that did him good. I think sold the first bull from Netherton in, uh, in 1955 for 4,000 guineas, which was a lot of money in 1955. Bright lad of, uh, bright lad of Netherton, or Netherton bright lad. And he went to Argentina, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, normally we were just selling bulls at the, a good commercial money at that time, but that would be the first of the big money that Netherton ever had, and likely today it'll likely be maybe be the biggest price we've had. Mm -hmm. uh, and that day, I think Dad bought a combine, a car, and other stuff, and still had money left over with it. So, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a lot of money if you put it in today's terms, isn't it? And uh, yeah. I remember talking to your father, uh, interviewing him for some other job that we did a, a while back, and him saying one of the one of the animals that he thought was key. What, what did you think he think was key to the the change or, or to the the substance in the Aberdeen Angus breed over the years, and uh, he came up with a bull called Keystone of Denaira. We'd, we'd... When Keystone of Denaira was being used and being line bred to all over, when he was being used very oh. heavily, Jai Kerr refused to use him, and he, he said he would be the ruination of the breed. And he was breeding bigger, taller cats, and uh, he eventually used a bull called Jumarerica Southburn, and I think he had a an eighth or probably no a sixteenth of Keystone in his pedigree. You know, it was right away back. That was the nearest he went. But Care uh, refused to get into the wee short-legged ones. Mm -hmm. He he, he warned the breeders well and truly not to take them. As a result, a lot of his bulls were sold quite cheaply to a chap called Ken Clark. Mm -hmm. who was buying for America, right. and that's where a lot of the white cattle came from. Oh, okay. They would be shipped out by this Ken Clark. He was picking up these bulls at 300. Your dad talking about Keystone of Denaira, uh, Willie, but uh, he was an influential bull uh, in just about in every pedigree uh, and all the big money bulls back in, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was. Dad talked about him. We had him in quite a few of the old uh, Blackbird lines that we had here, and that, he just, Dad just thought he was a, a bull before his time. For I think he's been mentioned in other podcasts as well by other Angus people. Well, he, he was mentioned the fact that he was shorter of the, of the of the cannon bone, which I think is at the time they were looking to bring bulls down, which is, in hindsight, is a lot easier thing to do. Willie, you're a breeder yourself, and I should mention that, of course, you're not just your father recognised breeder, of course, you're a recognised breeder yourself, and um, bringing a bull down shorter is actually easier to do than taking one up the way, isn't it? But he would be the bull that's probably responsible for some of those shorter-legged animals that were making the big money to Argentina. Yes, I mean, I suppose the fads change, and I suppose father's whole lifetime he saw the breed change i mean it, it went from the original type of angus to what people call native which are no more original than the the giants of the 90s and and now we're trying to go back to maybe where we were 100 years ago instead of 60. i remember your father talking about a bull called black knight i think back in the late 1890s and and the thing was huge he was over a ton then it opened my eyes i had no idea that angus were that big originally and uh, yes as you said he got went round full circle but he always as you just mentioned or alluded to just now that he always wanted to concentrate on breeding commercial bulls rather than following the fashion didn't he and i think that's something that stood netherton in good stead for for many years yeah, I mean, he, he was all, his grandfather told him never set out to try and breed breeders' bulls, but instead breed good crossing bulls, and the breeders' bulls will come along themselves. And that's what he always tried, and what we've always tried to do at Netherton, mm -hmm. is look at what the commercial man wants. 
and and the commercial man with a commercial mind again shows what a visionary your father was. He started weight recording the Angus in, his Angus in 1959. I mean that's probably two decades before anybody else would would, would do would consider weight recording animal. In fact, I think he was ridiculed for for doing that, wasn't he? Yeah, we were in the pilot scheme in uh, nineteen. 19- 59, like you say, that was pioneered by the late James Walker Love of the West of Scotland College of Agriculture. So, he, he, Dad was always progressive, even back then, and all the times, he, like even as the years went on, he got older, but he was still into computers, he could work that kind of stuff. And he felt performance recording was the way forward, and, uh, and doing whatever traits that we can do to improve the breed. I suppose people can argue whether they're good or bad, but I think performance recordings is a good tool. It's just how people use it that can maybe mislead. And, and, it's been, and it's been through its evolution process itself. And I mean, I know I was involved in that because I had a software program at the time and your father worked very closely with me, helping me develop the program into how he thought it would be more useful tool across all breeds, not just across the Angus breed and about sort of, I think it was the, the birth of the EBVs. And of course, the Americans had theirs and the Australians had theirs. And at the time, there was sort of a toing and froing as to whose were the right ones. But it just comes down to having the data. And if you don't start recording, then, then you have no data to go at. So I think recording, be the figures right or wrong, at least if you've got something recorded, you've got something to go at. And again, it's something we've discussed on this podcast. Yeah, and then in the, the 80s, we had the performance recording at Netherton from all the breeders around the country. So it pioneered that as well. So He did, that's right. And the, the MLC would be, yes, it would be the main um, recording station for a while. And I've got some of those figures somewhere which I'll probably look at and we can put out there of the of the weights of some of those animals. And just, just moving back a little bit, though, obviously you got involved in the committee and uh, ended up being president of the Aberdeen Angus Society in 1973. And he'd be a fairly young man back then. Yeah, he would be the one of the youngest. He would be the youngest president at that time. I think he was 38 years old uh, when he was president. And he was proud to serve on council. I mean, I think he had 25 years out of 31 on the council mm-hmm. uh, through the hard times, really, off the breed. So, that, And he stuck with them. That's so. the difference, isn't it? I mean, everybody wants to jump on a breed council when everything's flying. But when, at the times when the job is difficult, that's when you need the, the able men and the visionary men. And, hey, again, we've mentioned a few other visionary men on here. We'll come to them maybe in a minute of how the breed went sort of so far backwards that uh, it, it, it was almost falling off the cliff. And... Your father predicted that, though, didn't he? Predicted that the export market would would dry up, and I don't think anybody listened at the time. No, I mean, I think he saw the train going so extreme that uh, he wanted change, and he tried that through council. But council was, I think, in his words, full of the breeders that were making the money, and they didn't want change. And when exports dried up, I think the, I mean, the society was just about bankrupt because they tried to attract these buyers back so that's right and they're trying to bring them back in when all the, at the time because continental cattle taking over their place in the uk but i think in his, maybe it was in his reign of the president but he did get across to canada in the in the early 70s and i think uh, would be one of the first to go out there and actually realize how the canadians have been doing the job differently yeah i mean he and, and so well, 73 he was the president and he went to kansas for the forum and also that celebrating 100 years of angus cattle in america and he, he, he always it was a proud moment for him because he read the Queen Mother's letter, the patron at that time. Okay. And But he also got to Canada then and brought in two bulls mm-hmm. uh, in the early 70s, Walnut of Edgeley Acres and Willibar Easton. Mm-hmm. And he shared those bulls, shared the risk, I think, with uh, with Bob Crockett and, and, 
uh, Jim Stewart, was it? But yes, they did. Uh, those were, they would be extreme bulls, wouldn't they? There's no, no doubt about that. They would be extreme bulls. Yes, in, in those days, yes, they were just that little bit bigger and that, and and they saw the commercial reality, and that's what Father was always trying to do was to. If we step back just a little bit, that you did buy the Barnaby herder, which again a well recognised herd of Angus. Again, the, you know, the guys unloading, and he bought the entire herd, lock, stock, and barrel. When when would that be? Uh, really? It was nineteen seventy one, and that would be really the the start of Netherton starting to climb the ladder, if you know what I mean. I think both herds were around about 20-odd cows and we cut them, we killed hard and kept about 30 uh, between the two herds. And then really from that day, the success followed between the two herds that it clicked well. So, And the Barnaby herd would be uh, well recognised, I think through the 60s they would have had three or four Perth champions and exported a lot of cattle and of course uh, owned by the firm of Osmonds and uh, brought out by the, the fantastic stockman that was Alistair Retty. So uh, he was buying some good stock in, into, in a, from a herd like that. Of course, having brought bulls from, from Canada and, and there were a few females came in at that time as well, of course, to, to uh, uh, John Graham and one or two. And then, then the import market from Canada closed, did it? And all of a sudden, seeing where we could, you could get some a few genetics from, that, that door was slammed f- fairly firmly shut for a while. And, and that's why your, your father started looking to Ireland and, and uh, very successfully. Yes, I suppose father's been very lucky to have two or three bulls that have kind of dominated the breed in their time, in his lifetime. The first would be the Patrick Briefy that though father had no input in buying him or seeing him, it was Jimmy Minto from Eastfield and Sandy Dawson, his cousin, mm-hmm. found him in a, a herd, a commercial herd in Ireland, a five-year-old. So and between us, Eastfield and uh, Calf Ward, they bought him and then Eastfield sold this share after a year to Class Lockie. Mm-hmm. And but but in the early eighties he dominated. I think he had a third of all the total takings and the sales. It's phenomenal when you look at the figures. It yeah. is absolutely phenomenal. You're right. It was it was a third of the takings of of, of the, it, it, not just in one sale, but I mean if you look at the championships that he clocked up as well. I mean he was just he was a different ball. He had size. He had some of the original blood. I spoke to yeah. Philip Munry about the story of of, of Patrick Abrifi and a lovely expression which I've used a few times that he said, well. We wanted to breed decent-sized cattle when everybody else were breeding them the size of sheep, and I think that about sums up where where the world had got to in the in the Angus side of it. And they kept a bit of size in the cattle. They'd only got about six or seven cows in that herd, and uh, Patrick was one of them. And he said he went on. I think his females went on as well. His sister went on and bred fairly well. But he was just a phenomenal bull and and, uh, and a massive milestone, I think, in the Angus breed. And, and your father takes a lot of, a lot of that credit. Yeah, I mean, as I say, he suited into Netherton well, and as I say, Jimmy Minto and Sandy Dawson were really can take all the credit, most of the credit, I would have said, because they found him. So mm-hmm. we were just lucky enough to be involved there. So in the right place, yeah, yeah. I think uh, got in 1983, he grows to 125,000 Guinness. So it, the calves off him in one year. So that shows uh, shows what he was doing. And then there's another milestone again, and your father admits this: a, a, a spot of luck when he bought the cow Seabar uh, favourite, and uh, again, fantastic breeder went on and put a put a backbone in the herd, and put all the F's that went in went through Netherton all go back to that particular cow. And tell us the story of of her. Willie? Well, Seba would always be Dad's favourite cow. I think of all the cattle he's ever ha- owned, I think she owns a special part in his heart. And this is what he said about her when we spoke last. I think you told me this, that she actually goes back to her. Her generation goes she back goes right, right to the beginning back, of the herd. Right back to number two in the herd book, a favourite bred by Hugh Watson. I, I thought you said she was Keela, yeah. 
he tried he saw her at the shows at the Yorkshire when she came last in the class and uh, he tried to buy her then but she was think because she was bought in on some kind of deal she had to be sold at auction and he paid 2000 guineas for her uh, back then which was a lot of money for a cow that was standing last in the class and I think a lot of the top readers thought dad had went out of his mind to buy a cow like that but she bred well and actually I think one of the breeders that uh, criticised him for buying actually put her champion a few years later when she won Ireland but she she has dominated the breed uh, you mean uh, she was Highland and Royal Show champion she's the only cow ever to breed a Royal Show champion daughter and even to this day a lot of the F's that are winning in other herds trace back to her. So, yes, uh, certainly did leave a stamp. And uh, as he said, he was fortunate enough to, to to get her and buy her at a price that that uh, that, that, she, that he could afford. Because I think he thought she was going to be a, quite a bit more. Um, but yes, we'll go through some of the F's in a second because uh, there's some of those themselves have, have notched up and still notching up, as you said. Uh, um, you know, some of the highest prices in the breed, and then along came a bull called TLA Northern Samurai, and I remember hit Samurai, and he was a huge bull, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, Samurai would be the game-changer for the breed. I, th- I think all the cattle that came in from North America, the majority weren't good. They were maybe what was needed at the time to get size, but Samurai was the first one that came in with Angus character and style. Uh, and he kind of just dominated the 90s. Dad saw him at farm fair and just couldn't... He walked past him and he couldn't just get him out off his head, but another breeder had first option on him at the time. Uh, so Fowler had to wait on that auction being uh, declined. So uh, so Father jumped in as quick as he could to to buy him. And uh, he never looked back from Samurai. He don't, I mean, Samurai bred so many champions. He, he bred all three section champions in 1997. I think he sired first to fifth in a class of females at Perth Bull Sales. He means... Mm. Uh, He's just a legend in himself. Didn't he carried on breeding yeah. a lot of the people using the semen as well? But a lot of semen sold off him, I guess, later in his later years. But uh, as you yeah. said, they, yeah, they, he did put a, a huge backbone in, in, in the, right across the breed. Yes, I mean, I think he was... There's been very few bulls, you can really say, changed the breed. And he's he's one of them uh, from, from the 60s onwards. So. And was he a show bull, will he? he? He was shown. He was reserve male champion at the Royal. He... He was bet he was beaten by better bulls mm-hmm. uh, on the day, so there's no complaints that way. So, uh, but showing showing was and you said you know the Lynchin winning the Highland Seabar uh, favourite winning the the Highland and the Royal in 1981, I think. And uh, but uh, you guys became the people to beat him. And I started going to the Royal round about that time. And your father's wagon was always at your position number one, just inside the gate. And uh, at the Royal and the Highland, he was Netherton were very hard to beat for for a long period, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, showing from showing was from the. Well, I think Dad always tells the story from 1971. They always came home from the Royal Show with a first prize uh, every year, which takes some doing. And then the, we were, I suppose, as we progressed the herd into the 90s, we were breeding our own champions. A lot of the earlier ones were maybe bought in cattle, but we started breeding our own, and and we won the show herd of the year I think eight times in the 90s, and then we stopped showing, and then we won it again. 2011 to 2014 before we stopped again but uh, yeah we were I, th- I think i think we had 75 female championships at 114 shows wow. <laughs> uh, not many uh, people can say that one i don't think i mean you'd say that again really because that is an impressive stat <laughs> yeah i mean i think it was 75 at 114 shows female championships uh, 
when I after I took over back home. A bull bursting hole and oats was another import, was he? Did he not win the Grand Slam, which again is really, yeah. really done for one animal? No, he won the Highland Royal in New Yorkshire. He was a big bull. I mean, I suppose in this day we'd call him a plain bull, but he had dad bought him for his maternal genetics. He was he left great udders and milk on the cows. Uh, it wouldn't be a bull you would want nowadays, but he, we needed to change the type of cows. We needed to get them longer and cleaner mm-hmm. that we had. So he played an important part. Yeah. And you can only you can only breed bo- uh, buy bulls to fix the faults in your own herd sure. one at a time. Sure, so each one is a stepping stone to the, to the, to the next, quite right. So, and going back to that early interview, here's a snippet of the three of us discussing a bull that you also bought in called Dalreen Cruz. Dalreen Cruz. Mm. He was picked out of a pen of 85 young bulls. Was he really? By you? By me, well 85 young bulls. Uh-huh. And the two top bulls were... I didn't know their penny when I went in, but we asked the pedigrees when they came out of the three, and uh-huh. the, the two best ones were out of mother and daughter. We took the one out of the daughter because the daughter was got by a, a step further on in the generation the bull. Uh-huh. Cruz would have an advantage of working on samurai daughters, right. but he still bred more c- consist like through his sons and grandsons. Cruz would be the most mm-hmm. consistent. You had mm-hmm. samurai for maybe breed character. You had Cruz for muscle. You had transformer okay. for growth. Okay, and they all had if you mix them together, you make hopefully try and get the perfect one, mm-hmm. which is never bred. But eh, uh, but no, Cruz left muscle mm-hmm. like okay. like the breed had never seen before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and then uh, what became an often fixture anyway that you started having the Netherton matron sale, and by this time there were people clambering for Netherton genetics, weren't they? When were the first one of those people in the middle 80s, I guess? Yeah, we had one early sale uh, in 84, we had a first production sale, and it went well on the farm, and then we started moving uh, to have them at Stirling, and our first matron, really matron sale would be in 95, and then we kind of had them quite regularly up to I think we had six or seven sales mm-hmm. and we kept selling the cows over f- five six year old plus heifers and and one thing we've always done is like we've sold the northern herd three times mm-hmm. and kept 10 heifers and built up again so uh, we've always had faith in our young cattle and I suppose at that time we didn't see the point of having cows that were worth the money they were walking about the field when we could cash in and, and move forward with the next generation. And some of that of course would be hey, nowadays it's a lot easier because you can take the embryos and sell them on which because that wasn't really the done thing back then to, to, certainly in the 80s for, for, for filling the tank full of embryos and then selling the, the, the donors off was it? No and, and I suppose everybody's, I mean every time we had a matron sale the people were telling us oh that's now that and finished they sold all their best cows but uh, a lot of people would just see these because we work our cows very hard at Netherton as they get to five six year old they're they're big fat, they're in condition, mm-hmm. and they would be the best looking cows. But genetic wise, we always father always had faith in the next generation. Okay. And and these maintenance sales, they broke they had the record average every year, they had the top price female every year. And I think in the our eightieth anniversary sale, I think we broke nine records that we could off actually. So Yes, including uh, to one of the uh, twenty thousand for an early one, Netherton Fleur. Would that be right? And, and then uh, yes. thirty thousand then for for Missy after that. And Netherton Fleur again was it was a, a a great beast. And remind me who got her? She went to Scottish Coal. Okay, bought them in two thousand and four. Would that be right? Yes, she's originally well, Fleur. She goes back to the sea, my favourite cow. But she she have the Miss Essence line was a. A line that really started the Missy cow comes from that, and and we was, there's 
we we saw the cow twenty Miss Essence twenty to be in Canada and she'd be one of the best cows in Canada on that day along with Knights Blackburn 9Y who did so well at Blaylac mm-hmm. and uh, we got a flush uh, from the Miller-Wilson family and we wanted to flush her to a bull called TC Stockwin 365 which we rated very highly but they weren't that keen to flush to him because they didn't like him and she produced 12 embryos but we only wanted 10 so they said oh, take the last two but Father didn't only wanted the ten. We bought the ten, but the two embryos that were left in Canada produced a DMM Traction One O Nine J, who dominated the shows and produced a lot of show winners. And the, his full sister, one Miss Essence One O Eight J, was the same. So Mother Wilsons were really happy that we left the two embryos after all. Okay, and the Missy line, as I said, you cashed one in at the matron sale in, in uh, uh, two thousand and seven matron sale for thirty thousand. So uh, yeah, the A one one four. She did a lot of stock bulls. She went to uh, Balmaki. So yeah, and uh, round about the end of the eighties, your father was president again, and another first. Really, there wouldn't be many people that have been president twice of, of the same of the same herd book in, in any society. No, I, I think he would be the f- first. I, I might be wrong, but yeah, he'd be the first in the. In those years, to be twice mm-hmm. uh, president. So. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the, the high figures, and you mentioned the F line, and then uh, I think the, the record, or certainly the long time record, was broken by Netherton with uh, Netherton Figo, who goes back to the Seabar Seabar favourite and at thirty thousand. Yeah, he was Perth champion, and he would be the first bull to break thirty thousand in forty years yeah, yeah. in the breed. So. He, that would maybe be the start of the bigger prices coming in. He, in his day, he would be one of the bulls that would have the least faults that we've ever produced. Okay. Uh, he, he was just he had, he had everything. So, what was the breeding of him? Remind me. He goes back. Well, he's out of the the favourite line, and then he goes back. Uh, his sire was the the Leather and Royal Sovereign, the New Zealand line. And once that thirty thousand barrier had been broken, uh, of course you shelled out thirty six thousand for Moss, Mister Eshton. Uh, I think you bought him in a partnership. Yes, with, with the Porters from uh, Ireland. So he was a bull. We needed a bull that year. He was a he was a son off the twenty two B cow, and by a, an outcross for million dateline, he was first in his class at Stirling. Again, I wouldn't say he was. If we had been judging, I don't think we would have put him champion. But it was a bull we needed at the time, and. And he bred well for us, and he went on to be male champion at the Highland in 2010. And, Willie, we're giving all the credit to your father, here, obviously starting the herd there, but you had been involved by that time. In fact, you'd have been involved in the farm as a, at a young age. When, when did you get to, get to start working at home? Yeah, I mean, I came home in uh, 1989. Uh, my brother was before me, but I started in 1989 mm-hmm. uh, at the Netherton. One thing I would say about your father, we can talk about some great breeders over the years, and if we look at the likes of Kerr and, and, and um, Captain De Quincey and these, they bred two or three or four different types of breeds and different types of this and different types of that. Your father pretty much was a, it, it was black and that was that was it. But you did have a few sheep, didn't you? Yeah, we we did uh, dabble in Charlie sheep, uh, but uh, nobody really wants to pay much money for them, so we've still got them. And, uh, and Dad was keen on board the Lesters in his younger days. He, he had a good flock of them. But but it was it was only ever Angus Cattle in the pedigree side. Never tried the shorthorns or anything else. No, we did look at it. We did discuss about going into shorthorns at one time. But back then in the nineties, we didn't think we could ever go to Stirling with six shorthorn bulls and sell them. No. But uh, no. maybe if we'd started back then and kept it, it we we might have after that. Times so. have changed. Indeed. Times have changed indeed, indeed. And um, 
Yes, you said you went. You 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 stopped showing. I think that was kind of a conscious decision between you. Maybe just. Uh, you dominated the shows for that long. It was time to give up and let somebody else have a go, or maybe you you just was it a financial reason? But you basically withdrew from the show circuit in, in the in the early two thousands. Yeah, we stopped. There was a mixture of reasons uh, for that. Father was always trying to be ahead of the game, so we were trying to put muscle into the breed, and we we're trying to breed go from A to B, but we kind of hit D first and bred a kind of double muscled Angus, okay. uh, a bull which, in his day the breeders hated but maybe today a lot of them like that type but uh, and I think there was a lot of fallout from the society they tried to not like what we were doing at Netherton and they brought in all these rules and the society kind of thought that my starting was only in one bull called Darlene Cruz and uh, so they brought in these rules to try and hurt the herd but not realising it was already my statin was in the herd and, okay. and at the time we thought we were doing the right thing it wasn't until later we realised that my statin was uh, a negative effect on a maternal herd, so we kind of moved away from that. But we would be the one of the main re reasons for the muscle going into the breed. So, so we kind of withdrew from the the shows for a while. And Dad was a great supporter. I mean, he supported the shows when the breed was at its lowest. And him and Ashley George Cormick were asked by the society to go to a lot of shows to keep the classes for years. So. Yes, he certainly did, and I remember him saying, "You go to some shows, and literally would be the two of them there, and they'd sort of share the spoils." But if they didn't go, the classes would have gone. Even at shows like the Yorkshire, I think you know, there would have, there would have been nothing there. Yeah, and and so we kind of we kind of took a back seat just to. At that time, I'd been to New Zealand and brought in a lot of New Zealand embryos, so these were coming on board and mixing well with the crews and that. So, I think we we had our. Uh, we came with Figo and his lot, and I think we our five bulls averaged thirteen thousand that day. Uh, we had Perth champion, and then we came with the next maitland sale. It broke a lot of records. So, and then we started showing again in 2010. Just uh, my daughter Shona was keen, yeah. and we started. We came to the Highland, and we were, I suppose, a dream start. We were male and female champion, and overall, so yeah, you hadn't forgotten. <laughs> no, and everybody was happy for us. Which yeah. back in when we were winning everything in the 90s, I don't think they were. Mm -hmm. But it was a nice story. But uh, and then we sold the two animals. Uh, at the Highland, and we went to the National with a young team and we were champion with a, a young bull that year. And then we had a great show season until 2.15 and when we could see our type was changing again because we're moving to a different type and we just didn't think it was worth going to the shows anymore. So. It, it's, it's colossal, really. I mean, I've been involved in writing the history, some of the history of the Angus breed, as you know, uh, and still am. Um, but the, the the change, and then the change, and then the change again, and it's about the vision. As I said, your father had that that vision to see this is where we're going. And I remember the year, we'll maybe go on to in a minute, when he won the, I think it was the William Young Award, and him saying, oh, we've got other animals that can finish off grass now. This, you know, this We can't afford to feed mountains of grain because grain one day is going to be too expensive. And here we are sitting there now with it. With, a lot of people thinking the same thing this year. Yeah, I mean, the herd's changed, and that's the type we've got. We've added a lot more capacity to the herd, functional animals. We're lucky now with the partnership with HW, we can keep cattle outside. So we know we're fortunate, but we've bred a type now that is just maybe not suitable for the show ring in the, U in, in the UK. So. 
Well, the bottom line is, is the, the, you're in the job for profit. Everybody's in the job for profit, and the, sometimes the show ring is it's not the most profitable place to be. But uh, yeah, you've got, got to breed animals you can sell. I'm just realising I missed another name. There was Netherton Palm, and she uh, she did a, a great deal of good because she was the mother of uh, Gal Country Predator for David Walker, who I think was by Samurai, and uh, that was a milestone again at uh, when he was sold at eighteen thousand at uh, Perth. Yeah, that was in October he won. He bought her for £3,000 at her sale in '95, And I think actually the intermediate champion was also a calf inside one of the cows that day. Okay. And uh, But uh, Pam was a good, she, she had Patrick Briefy mm-hmm. in her and then uh, a sire by Nell and Lord James, who goes back to another cow that had an influence, was Hillsgrove Nan okay. from Ireland that Dad bought. And then a bull that Duncan bought in Canada, GRM Canadian Prime. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll move on to maybe what you're you're doing in a second. You said your daughter is involved in that, and she is she still at home at the farm? Yeah, Shona works full sure. time uh, with me. So let's go on. Then you made the decision. Well, I think I remember the the, the farmsteading was sold at uh, at Netherton, wasn't it, for for housing? And you built a new steading on the on the side there, which was pretty state of the art. Yeah, we got a chance. It's actually through John Lascelles. Actually, he put this idea in our heads and. I suppose we took our time to get it right, but then the crash came mm-hmm. when the housing market. So we we sat down and we could get a grant for the new stead. So we sat down with the bank and everybody and we decided to go ahead. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the old steading, but we just thought this was the way forward. And I don't think we've ever really looked back from that. We, I suppose the difference between me and father is Netherton to him would be the farm. Mm-hmm. Whereas Netherton to me is the herd. Okay. He worked the land. Mm-hmm with a horse and plough and things like that. So we always looked at what was the worst case scenario was, was if we ever had to sell up, we would have enough money to retain the herd and buy a farm somewhere else. And to me, that was a, an acceptable way to go forward. Okay. Okay. And, and you, uh, as you said, you joined forces or, or sold up to uh, uh, Highland Wagyu. And uh, that, when would that be? Uh, would that be now 10 years or more? A bit more, maybe? Yeah, 2014. Uh, well, Netherton's 300 320 acres and uh, uh, Blackford Farms, who's Highland Wagyu, they have about 20 odd thousand acres right round us. We're right in the middle. And, and Massam, who's the owner of Highland Wagyu, was in and he used to nip in and come and see this. And I went with him and uh, he took me to see this heifers. And I said, He's asked me what I thought of them. And I said, Oh, you've got the makings of a herd. And he said, Yeah, but the makings of a herd and having a herd is different. He says, How can I climb the ladder? And I was, I made a joke, says, oh, I'll do it for you if you want, help you. And he went away that night and he came back the next day and he said, did you mean what you said? And I said, yeah, I'll help you out. And then he put an offer on the table that okay. we couldn't really refuse. Yeah. So we just worked together, their cattle run on along with the Nelton herd and we just put some gates in the dikes mm-hmm. and we now can run a couple of thousand acres up in the high ground, okay. so it makes a difference. And you built the numbers up, back up again then, I think it was quite a big, uh, well, as well as well as the Wagyu, but the Angus became one of the biggest one of the biggest herds around. To, to, to yeah, well, just about 250. Uh, I suppose that I've, I like to sell, so we would build up more, but I like to sell cattle, so uh, we keep selling. But uh, the Nelton herds, maybe, instead of being at the 80 cows, we're st- we have made a constitution to keep us at the kind of 40 cows. Okay. Uh, and then we have some in partnership and then there's 200 odd in the HW Angus herd and when we went in partnership it was a year we would have sold the herd so uh, the the stipulation that we wanted was that you had to buy the the Netherton herd that we would have been selling that year apart from the 10 heifer calves so okay but you kept the Netherton prefix 
Yes, we still have the herd and we still own the farm and the steading. So, uh, so down the line, there'll always be an Etherton here. So, good, good. Well, it's been a long and uh, interesting road, as I said, for, with Netherton. We go back when we're talking now, going back to uh, your grandfather would have taken over Netherton. So we're talking, we're talking coming up to uh, coming up near a hundred years, really. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, twenty twenty four. We will celebrate a hundred years. Uh, of the herd starting, and I mean, that, and Dad was proud of that. And you, one thing, Dad was born in Netherton as well, so that always kept a special part in him to be here. So, and yeah, there's one or two people that claim to be the oldest herd in the country, but they've been in and out. Whereas you, your father has not just always had cattle; cattle have been the mainstay of his as every day, all that time. <laughs> yes, I mean the herd. I mean, we're just a family farm. You I mean three hundred acres and. I mean, in the eighties and the nineties, the eighty cow herd had to support three families. So we always had to try and make money out of the cattle. And and even in the low days of the Angus breed, the females we ran them commercially, and and they they sold okay. They weren't at the big money back then, but but we got the benefits when the breed started to to come good again. And let's go back to um, your father was interested in the history. I remember chatting to him, and I could chat to him for hours. As a lot of people listening to this program will have done the same thing, and always a uh, intelligent and 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 uh, and fun to, to chat with. But uh, he did look at, at at writing a book, and he certainly put together a presentation on the history of the cattle. And of course, that legendary scrapbook is all is all about there. Is uh, yeah, he, he made a good effort to, to conserve the history, didn't he? Yeah, he did a presentation. Uh for some talks around the club from showing the differences in Angus and his ch- the changes that he saw. And in the society, with the help of uh, Bob Anderson, John Elliott Sr., Eddie Galanders and Barry Turner, they kind of made it into a pen drive and just, just freshened it up and smartened it, made it more professional. And, and the society sell that and all proceeds go to the youth development programme. And that, that's a brilliant thing. We'll talk about that because he did get very much get involved in the youth development programme, as did one or two. Marion Tilson is a name that springs to mind. But uh, a fantastic thing, the YDP, that a lot of other, other breed societies picked up on later. I mean, Angus really pioneered the youth development programme, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they've got to take credit. And we're lucky with a lot of good uh, coordinators that took us forward all the time. And, and it's growing all the time. It's good to see people with, out with the Angus breed take part. And we've seen a lot of people young kids actually start Angus herds through it but dad loved it and did whatever he could to to help either by sponsoring or donating uh, stuff and and he's proud I think one of his proudest moments was at the World Forum in 2017 that was held in Scotland and the final day and the final weekend for the youth finals was held at Netherton all the cattle preparations and uh, I think he just loved that. He loved spending time with people and talking. And at the end, when everybody was gone, all the young people were still dancing in the marquee at one o'clock in the morning, and they were all singing an Angus for me to father. And it was it was such a moving moment. I'm sure, so. I'm sure as I said, I was a man that wanted to help everybody else and and and, and help the breed. Not you know, saw 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 past himself, didn't he? Let, let's just go to yourself then, Willie. You were you were president of the Anger Society as well, and 2009, I think you might have been one of the youngest presidents. Uh, yeah, I, I was just a little bit younger than Dad, but and I, but I think James Playfair is the youngest. He's he'd be a year younger than both of us. Okay. But a great honour to be asked. And especially when we weren't really doing anything in the breed at that time, you know, we'd taken a step back. So, coming from the cold, 
Well, I mean, you could give us firsthand what it was like being president of the society because it's had its share of, to find a point, it's had its share of ups and downs within the, the political sense. Um, and uh, it, would be, it wouldn't be an easy job running, running that ship. Yeah, I was lucky. Uh, Ron McCarty was the chief executive and he kept a smooth ship. And, and I had a nice, I had a good year, so I can't complain. And, and I, suppose, I suppose it's true about the Angus breeders. Of, we just, uh, we like to moan and find fault when even things are going good. So... And just have a word about about Ron there. I mean, I did some work with Ron as well in, in his later days, unfortunately, no longer with us, but a uh, tremendous man, Ron McCarty, uh, saw it, saw the functions that needed to be done and, and he, he got things done, didn't he? Just He, he, would, he would go ahead and just get, things, get things moving, get things done, achieve things. Yes, no, and I mean, I remember I was on council maybe uh, 10 years before uh, I was president and I, I came home from the... The meeting and dad said how did it go and i says oh it's fine but i says ron hattie runs everything mm-hmm. so and, and he did he kept everything smooth and and that's what we needed we need a chief executive that can control things the president's really a figurehead just to help yeah but uh, you need a chief executive and you've seen that in other breeds that have had good ones mm-hmm. that have lasted years mm-hmm. the breed has flourished yeah, and somebody that, that's there for the good of the breed rather than good of themselves, which, you know, again, I wouldn't point fingers at other breed societies, but we see a little bit of that from, from time to time. And Ron did keep a... He ran a tight ship, and he used to have a sort of fairly close um, circle, if you like, of what he said, businessmen around him, the people that actually been and achieved and, and made a made a multi-million pound business run rather than just sort of small-time breeders, and I think that was probably the key to his success. Yes, yeah, no, he he done well, and I mean, I say, I suppose we've been lucky as a sack with quite a lot of good secretaries and chief executives over the years. So, and uh, achievements wise, yeah, your father was recognised with the Hugh Watson Trophy, which uh, is that an annual trophy? Just goes to to breeders, well, Angus breeders. Yeah, it's not, it's not an annual one. I think there's only been five or six people been recognised with it, so he was uh, very honoured to get that, and along with the. Uh, William Young Award from the Highland Show. The William Young Award, of course, that, that is an annual one, and that goes to people who have been influential within the industry across the board, doesn't it? And there's some very yeah. prestigious names on that award, I do know. And, yeah, uh, yeah but, he'd be honoured to get that one. I enjoyed, but I think the the thing that really honoured him was when the American Angus Hall of Fame produced uh, the most influential pioneer breeders from 1824 to 2016, and, and Father was one of them, so... And he, he cherished that uh, picture with all the names of the greats and the breed from around the world, and he's there. So I've seen that picture, and there are some great names on there, including the likes of Kerr and what have you. And, uh, and of course, Tom Burke, the man behind the, the, the Angus Hall of Fame, is somebody else that we, I'm doing a bit with at the moment, and he's been on this podcast. And, Tom, if you're listening, uh, he's probably still flying around the world at a million miles an hour, which is what he seems to do. Yeah, no, he's a great man, a great man for the breed uh, worldwide. So. He tires me out just thinking about the, the, the time that he puts into the breed. We're talking about legends in the breed. I mean, your father has been honoured for the right reasons and uh, it's tremendous to discuss uh, William McLaren Sr. And, and a man I had a privilege to, to have known. I mean, his dad loved listening to your podcasts and that even when he was in hospital at the end. So I, I think he'll be honoured that you've, you've did a podcast about him. So he'll be looking down. He'll be proud. So. Well, that, William, I'm going to thank you very much for your time on here. I know you're busy delivering balls and various things. And uh, I'm going to um, end this podcast with a great song that your father wrote. Just tell me a little bit about the, how that came about. Do you know, of course, called An Angus for Me? For the forum in uh, 1977, he wrote it with uh, Christine Dawson. Uh, who was Sandy Dawson's wife at the time? So, and he just kind of, it just kind of grew, and 
dad would write a new verse for each forum and he just loved singing it and anywhere he went and people would clap and shout ole if he was in South America and he sung with the Maoris in New Zealand and so he just loved it, and, and people around the world just loved the song. So it was as I do, yeah. and everybody listened to this as well. And I'll remind them of that when we uh, just end this program. Yeah. Willie, thanks very much for your for your time on there with me today, and it's been an absolute honour and a pleasure to talk about uh, your father and some of your own doings as well within the within the Netherton herd. And, and what a what a great man we all look back to. No, well, thank you, thank you very much. The Aberdeen Angus is the best of them all. Hugh Watson of Keeler, he founded the breed. For Aberdeen Angus there was a great need. For all the wide world, the folks were no fools. They improved their stock using good Angus bulls. Greaties of calving is something they give Their young calves are strong with a great will to live O'er all the five continents they've spread their fame Though the rations were poor they still gave good weight gain Their red juicy steaks are such a delight To see the fine marbling it is a great sight Their fame for their good beef the whole world o'er With the quality meat shortage we could do with some more An Angus for me, an Angus for me If it's not an Angus it's no use to me The shorthorns are broad, the Hereford and all but the Aberdeen Angus is the best of them all. T'was Mr George Grant who in 1873 imported for Angus out to the prairie. In Victoria, Kansas, they were used on Longhorn to give them black calves with no sign of a horn. Scotia, when in Swedes they were fed, their diet to prairie and cornstalks instead. They strengthened and grew and fear took the eye. The Americans were pleased and by God so am I. An Angus for me, an Angus for me. If it's not an Angus, it's no use to me. The short arms are broad, the Hereford and all, but the Aberdeen Angus is the best of them all. We've got limbers in Charlie and Simmon till now. They were not bred for beef but for pulling a plough. But if you want the best steaks that ever was known, it's Aberdeen Angus that you ought to own. Now every four years when our work is done, we all join together in a world forum. We 
we talk about cattle and we have a ball And keep Aberdeen Angus the best of them all An Angus for me, an Angus for me If it's not an Angus it's no use to me The Shorthorns are broad, the Hereford and all But the Aberdeen Angus is the best of them all An Angus for me, an Angus for me If it's not an Angus it's no use to me the short ones are broad, the Hereford and all, but the Aberdeen Angus, the best of them all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, and as always, we're kindly sponsored by Harborough Limited, and... Uh, as cattle start to get housed this time of year, why not speak to Harbro to get a feed budget in place and finalise cost-effective rations for your winter months? Talk to your local Harbro representative or look up Harbro online or on social media there to get their contact details. And whilst on the subject of social media, don't forget to look up Top Lines and Tales' Facebook page where you'll find some fantastic photographs this week uh, around, based around uh, the legendary Willie McLaren and also photographs to back up other editions of Top Lines and Tales.